When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Shane Grove, the host of the From the Shadows podcast. With me is Jason, the super producer. Greetings, everyone. And um, we just want to welcome you to, I think this is our very first best of episode. Is it not, Jason? I think it is. Uh, yeah, we've only had best of howlers. Best of howl, best of the Ozark howler, yeah. Yep. So so um, because we get so very little time off, we, uh, we decided... Uh, to take a little time off here for the 4th of July weekend and celebrate. I know Jason likes to set off a lot of illegal fireworks. Shh, okay. don't tell. I'm sorry. I apologize. But uh, so today's, sh- today's show, for all our loyal listeners, is kind of a best of. And I we went through and found four different older episodes, picked out 10, 15 minutes out of each one of those episodes that we thought would be interesting. And um, hopefully... If if the little part of the episode interests you, you guys can go back, find that episode, and listen to the whole episode. Um, yeah, we'll know. put the episodes in yeah. the description. Yeah, we'll put the episodes. So that way, whatever podcatcher you use, you can you know go back and look through the other episodes yeah. and be able to find yeah. it. So we got um, so we got David Hensley talking about his experience with the Hat Man. Very, very good. Very exciting. Got Nick Redfern talking about black-eyed children. One of my favorites. Oh, I hate the black-eyed children. I like Nick Redfern. He's Ah, the best at no matter whatever he talks about. And check out his books, too. We got got Ken Ken Gerhardt talking a little... I, gosh, it was Bigfoot and some other some yeah, other stuff. Predominantly, some other Bigfoot stuff. Ken Gerhardt's so. another great. Yes. He was another great guest. Yes, and then Brian Bowden talking some Dogman stuff. Yes, and Brian was a fantastic guest and told some some great uh, Dogman st- uh, stories from some of his research. So we hope you guys enjoyed the little tidbits that we picked out for you guys to listen to. We hope you go check out those episodes in their entirety because um, they are. 
you know, they're from some of our early days. So. Oh yes, they're from some of the uh, early days of the, of the podcast. We're not as we're not as refined in those episodes as we are now. And and also, uh, if <laughs> you happen Gloss. to hit one of your uh, <laughs> one of your Gloss. favorite episodes, uh, you know, share it with somebody. Yeah. Wherever you're listening to it off of, you hit that little square box with the with the arrow on it and uh, share that thing with another friend or something. That really helps us out because that pushes us up in the algorithm and uh, puts us in front of a lot more fans, uh, a lot more people of like minds like you and myself. Ah, well, uh, here I think maybe our fans just want to keep us all to themselves because they know how cool they really are. No, oh, we want to ah. increase our base. <laughs> yes, we want more of us just thinking like that's how we're going to get answers, my friend. Get answers, all right. That's right. Uh, so, so, so for getting you know in the in the regards of getting answers, share share it with your friends. Share your and favorite episodes. Or share your not favorite episodes. Sp- spend the Fourth of July <laughs> weekend around the grill. Tell Alexa you want to listen to from the know, shadows podcast, from the, Sh- the Ken Gerhardt episode. It'll pull right up, or the Nick Redford, or episode. the Nick Redford, or David Hensley, or Brian Bout. Hey, whatever. But we just hope that you guys enjoy uh, your Fourth of July weekend and keep it safe. Keep it safe, and we'll be back uh, next Friday with a brand new episode. And and we don't even know which one. We've got so many good ones in the can. We don't even know which one we're gonna pull, we're gonna put out next Friday, do we? No, we not don't. Yet. We don't. So, but uh, let us know what you think. We hope you enjoy it and uh, have a great fourth. And we'll uh, talk to you guys again next week. Yeah, eat a piece of barbecue chicken for me and Grover here, and uh, and possibly uh, shoot off a bottle rocket for us. <laughs> All right, have a good one. Enjoy your holiday. So for me, uh, it started uh, like I said. Uh, I was working at that time seasonally uh, for Cedar Point in the park, and uh, there was only a handful of people there, and it was kind of one of those cooler days, rainy, and uh, we got out early on that Thursday, and I said, well, I'm just going to go home instead of staying in the dorms. Uh, I didn't feel like being alone and crappy, and, and, you know, there was nobody there from college to party with, so what's the sense of staying there? So I drove home, and uh, usual night, normal, everything's normal, went to bed and said goodnight to my parents, and off to bed I went. Now, at that time, you have to understand, too, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but there was a time period where I was um, terrified of thunderstorms. Uh, just, it's something from a childhood, uh, just terrified. It would make me sick to my stomach, even if, if there was a storm alert on TV. You know, it was kind of a joke. You could find uh, Dave hiding in the basement in the corner with his helmet on and his bottled water. Uh, And I used to go around propping open all the doors in the house and the windows because it was a belief in the 60s that if you did that, the vacuum wouldn't blow up your house. So, yeah, I was terrified of storms. uh, What kind of helmet helmet did you have on? (laughs) Well, actually, it it, it was a toy German helmet that Schultz wore and, you know, like short, uh, Schultz, uh, Schultz, I know, Schultz, you know, I know nothing. Yeah. I know nothing. Yeah, exactly. Hogan. Exactly. I know nothing. Yeah, Hogan zeros. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I go to bed, I wake up, uh, probably about three, well, maybe a little after in the morning. Um, and I'm hearing a distant thunderstorm and so I'm a little nervous, not too bad, but I'm, I lay there awake. You know, again, kind of like the movie Poltergeist, kind of weird because I like that kid. I was counting down the seconds of the thunder and it became really intense and over about a period of 15 minutes. 
And at that point, I was, again, nervous. I'm like, uh, mom should be up to, to, to go to work shortly, so I'm going to go out and make a pot of coffee and wait for her. So I sat up in bed, and there was a lightning strike outside my room. Really, like, it, it hit the tree or, or even the house. It was so loud. And I kind of jumped, and, uh, and you know, I'm, again, sitting on the side of my bed, but it startled me, and I kind of jerked. But I looked at the window, and there was a secondary flash of lightning, and through the curtains, there was a silhouette of a man wearing a large, uh, like a fedora-style hat, a brimmed hat. That's all I could tell, but it was uh, lit up like a backdrop. So I, like, and I, I gasp, and I turn in my bed. I just pivot my body to go get my stepdad and mom. And as I did that, at the foot of my bed was this thing uh, or man it uh filled about every inch of the ceiling uh up to the ceiling was about seven foot tall ceiling it was huge he was draped in a cloak um kind of like jack the ripper it had a high collar um pure black face perfectly black i mean blacker than black it was almost as if it absorbed any light and um he was wearing it was wearing a fedora style hat like a gangster hat or like Jack the Ripper, and I couldn't move. I, I, the fear was so strong, I literally couldn't move. My heart started banging like it was going to burst out of my chest. This thing then turns, and it was I could still see it in my mind like a mechanical robot. It was creepy as hell. It turns sideways and then glides over the, past the foot of my bed and then mechanically like like it's weird but it turned again and glided up to me and i can't move my heart is banging it then leans in and it's inches away from my face and i really at that point thought my heart was going to literally explode in my chest cavities it took its hand and put it on my chest and he pushed me down into the bed and then physically rolled me onto my side away from him and it leaned into my neck, and I could feel the fabric, its hat, its collar, whatever it was, on my neck and shoulder. And at that point, whether it spoke to me telepathically or whether it spoke to me in words, I don't know. But it was a deep, terrifying voice, and it more or less, and if I can imitate it, I'm not very well, very well but it was like, relax, you shall not be armed. And that's all I remember about 45 minutes later I wake up and I'm like <gasps> and I gasp for air and I jump up and I run and I hit the light in the room and I'm looking around uh, then I go outside uh, into the kitchen my mom's already up and I don't say anything kind of like the judge didn't say anything to his mom or anything it's one of those things you're you're processing and again terror I didn't think she'd believe me I I don't know what was going through my mind but they didn't say anything and and <laughs> As I find out later, Megan did the same thing to me. I, she actually had an experience before college but didn't tell me. But then um, when my mother said, did you hear that lightning strike? I thought for sure it hit the house. That w- I knew I was not dreaming, absolutely positively knew. And that's my story. Um, and if it happens today, I know if I get a return visit, I will die. Um, there's no doubt in my mind because at my age, there's no way my heart could handle something like that. But um, that actually became our first episode on Paranormal Road. 
um, and all the kids do tell their stories. Um, and it's something because up until the age of the Internet, I had no clue that this was real. There was one thing. Um, that was B.C. years before children. And then comes uh, the A.C. years after children. There's, <laughs> after a, lot of stu- there's a lot of stuff for all of us that happened before children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nothing but against Megan you guys. Just... Nothing against you guys. <laughs> Megan was just a baby. And we're watching TV. I'm Megan, yeah, not Megan, but uh, my uh, ex-wife at the time, Teresa. We're watching TV. And I yell for her to come in because we're watching the um, Twilight Zone. And they actually have an episode there called The Shadow Man. And I was just floored because in that episode, and they recreate, you know, the, the entity, it is exactly what I saw and experienced that night. And I, for years later, was convinced that this producer must have had a personal experience because I could not believe the striking identical um, play, how they portrayed it. But again, I kept it in the back of my mind as, okay, it was freaky, it was horrible, and I kept telling myself just to, to move on that it was a uh, lucid dream. Uh, I knew it wasn't, but I kind of pushed it in the back of my mind. And that's my story, and it all came to a crashing reality when I got that telephone call from Megan at Wright State that night. So, so Megan, so, so you had never, just so before we go on with Megan, so you had never talked about this with the kids at all. Like they didn't have a clue and and you'd never talked with your, your mom or your stepdad at all. They they didn't know anything. I never, nope, never told anybody in the family. Uh, I don't even, honestly, I, I only think I told Teresa because of what I saw in that Twilight Zone episode. That's when I had to share with her what happened to me. Now, did you? Uh, and as the, as the kids would tell you, um, their mother, she doesn't repeat stuff. She doesn't like talking about paranormal. She doesn't want to even acknowledge existence. Uh, so it, it certainly is some, something. She's a little she bit more open-minded them. now, let's be fair. Now she, she is. <laughs> now, so your mom when yeah. did not say anything even after she went in and had to change her sheets? Because uh, I'm, assu- <laughs> I'm assuming you may have told. I mean, listen, you can say whatever you want, but however, that voice that you just said was. Right. I, right. I mean, that's. I mean, Jason's beard got straight. Like, <laughs> the, he just went. I mean, that. Okay. So, how, before we go on, how did you even. Like, the next time there was a thunderstorm, besides the, mm-hmm. the part that you were always terrified of them. How did that work? You know, uh, it, it, thunderstorms in the day I was fine uh, in the daytime, but at night, it it every single time there was a storm at night, I literally just wouldn't go to bed. I'd stay up, I'd watch TV, I would pace, I would not go to bed. And even after that, it took months before I could go to sleep without a light on. Oh, I wouldn't um, blame you. I wouldn't blame you at all. Yeah. Now, Nick, you mentioned one thing. Well, a couple. Th- things I wanted to ask you about the black eyed children mm. that that subject scares me to death but is also fascinating what so give give our listeners a little mm. background on black eyed children and what what they're all about well this is sort of a really weird kind of phenomenon which didn't really begin until uh, round about 1997 98 so round about 20 years ago a little bit more 
And but even then, it didn't really take off big time. It wasn't until sort of the early to mid 2000s, sort of 2004, 2005, 2006, when it really started to take off. And the first person who um, talked about this uh, was a guy named Brian Bethel, who um, lives and works in Texas. He's a he's a full time journalist on a on a newspaper, and. Um, he was involved. He was one of the first people, if not the first person, to talk about having had an, uh, one of the Black Eyed Children experiences. Um, now, with hindsight, you know, you, you can think, well, does that mean that was the first case? It doesn't. It actually doesn't. What it actually means is that Brian was the first person to talk about it. But over the years, other people have come forward after the whole phenomenon's been talked about and people have said, well, I saw something like this, you know, 50 years ago when I was a kid and, um, you know, and then they come forward because someone else has come forward. So it is difficult to say how old the phenomenon is, but in terms of people talking about it, it definitely was sort of, apart from Brian Bethel, it really was sort of the early 2000s, sort of 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Um, and the Black Eyed Children... Well, they're called the black-eyed children because their eyes are reportedly completely black. You know, not just a sort of a larger black middle area, but the entire eyes are black. And they, they're kind of strange in the sense that typically they look between the ages of like about 10 and 13. And you don't really see any kind of younger than that. And you don't see any older than that it's kind of like they're all suspended in sort of um you know just that that age if you like or that age period and typically what happens is that they'll knock on people's doors late at night and um if you imagine you know sort of you're watching tv at night it's 10 o'clock and there's suddenly a loud bang on the door i mean the first thing you know you know you're going to look through the the spy hole on the front door and um and if you see these sort of three creepy kids with like milk white skin that's how it's described you know their skin is like literally white white and they've got these black hoodies on that they kind of push um over their head so you can barely see the face and i think they do that so you don't get a good look at the black eyes you know because it's dark outside and they've got the heads down etc etc but and they people feel compelled to open the door you know you most of us in that situation, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you see three kids in hoodies at the door. You're not going to open it to them. But the weird thing is, most of the witnesses have to open the door. And um, they felt in in a strange way that their mind was being controlled or kind of like a sense of hypnotism. And some of them said they actually really had to fight hard to prevent themselves from opening the door never mind preventing the the kids from coming in but actually preventing them one of the guys talked about how he looked at his arm with with terror as his arm went towards the door to open the door and he didn't realize what was going on because he didn't he actually wasn't doing it of his own volition so to speak um and in the several cases, there aren't many cases where they have managed to get in, but in the cases where they have got into people's homes, the witnesses have said literally within minutes that they've started to feel sort of weak and tired and crashing like, like a diabetic would crash, you know, if they hadn't had food for 
10 hours or whatever, you know, and they get the shakes and they feel ill and clammy and cold. And the witnesses have said they, they felt as if the black-eyed children were quite literally draining them of energy, kind of like a psychic vampire. And they, that is one of the big theories, that the black-eyed children are sort of like a, an energy vampire. And, they, you know, and that's one of the other interesting parallels with the vampire thing, is that they won't come into your house until you invite them in. That's why they appear to um, sort of hypnotise people, because unless you tell them you can come in, they stand on the door frustrated and screaming at the people, why won't you let us in, that kind of thing. So so it has like a lot of parallels and overtones related to like vampires, you know, even the old legends of vampires. And, and it, most of the people said they felt they were sort of literally being almost digested in a very strange way, but like digesting your energy, your life force, you know. Brian's story, I think you can see it on Monsters and Monsters and Mystery or Monsters of America mm -hmm. uh, on demands on Destination America or Travel Channel. And he tells a very compelling story about how he, he pulled into basically a, a parking lot of a strip mall and these three kids approached the car, two kids, and they asked for a ride home. And he, you know, felt nervous about it and he saw their eyes. And the same thing that, that Nick's explained, he just, he, they he almost let him in the car and, and he knew he shouldn't and yeah. they became more and more agitated like come on mister just give us a ride home you know and then i think they even gave him some story that the they couldn't get into the movie or whatever and he was like well wait a minute the parking lot's empty i mean there would see, be no movie see i had never until nick just said i'd never heard that they had tried to get into people's houses everything i'd ever heard was they approached people in cars right no i've heard about they do try to get in your houses they'll knock on the door are you sure these aren't the people trying to sell the magazines like the people <laughs> drop them off in the so, drop them off. one of the, one of the things that's consistent with every story that i've heard about these black-eyed children is that they cannot come in unless you invite them similar to like a vampire. that's right so nick tell us i mean obviously Nobody has the, the, the definitive answer. Um, for all of our listeners, well, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, some people say, you know, they're aliens, but a lot of people don't realize that there isn't a single report of the black-eyed children having been seen in association with UFOs. You know, and you, think, you might think there would be because, you know, you see the pictures of aliens on TV and, you know, on the net, and they've always got, the, like, the large black eyes. Um, so you would think, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, would you think, um, well, they're like a cross between human and alien hybrids. That's one of the theories. But as I said, there's not been a case where, you know, the, there's an association or a connection between the black eyed children and UFOs. But you've got other theories. I mean, um, some people think they're demonic creatures that can take on sort of different forms, um, and, um, you know, they, they're not quite sort of fitting in as much as they'd want to, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people kind of go down that path, like the, the paranormal, supernatural angle, and, um, you know, some of them, as I said, take the view that they are kind of literally demonic, you know, and taking on different forms. And um, But, uh, you know, it's, it's a really weird and creepy phenomenon. And... Um, David Weatherly, a good friend of mine, um, David wrote sort of the definitive book 
on the uh, Black Eyed Children, and that's um, that that's a, um, the book, his book's called Black Eyed Children. That's a really good book because it covers the, the the main really good cases and also you know the different theories as to as to what they might be. Now, have they so they so like the story you were telling, like they got into the house. What got them out of the house? Did I mean I assume the person was able to tell the story because they survived whatever encounter they had. Well, yeah. Well, the, the, the two cases that I have where they managed to get into the house, and they managed to get in the house because the hypnotism or what do you, whatever you want to call it, mind control, was too strong, and they felt themselves opening the door, and they did open the door, and they backed away, sat down, and the children stood in front of them, and one of them just said something like, food or need food it wasn't even like a full sentence it was like really you know as if they couldn't speak english properly and um and that's when they started to feel weak and tired as if they were being drained and the and the black-eyed children were feeding on that energy um but what's interesting is that in both cases neither of the witnesses could remember how they left the house or the apartment or whatever it was uh, in one case, it was an apartment, um, but they they could not remember how you know they'd left. It was as, it was almost as if like three or four minutes of their memory had just been erased. You know, um, not kind of like you know where you wake up in the middle of the night or whatever and fall back to sleep and you know you you, you have vague memories of doing it but you can't remember it all. It wasn't like that. It really was the whole. 10 minutes or whatever it was, was just gone, you know, and they tried as hard as they could. They just could not remember anything after them coming in. And then what they, all they could remember after that was just coming round, you know, and um, with no recollection of anything else at all. So um, we don't, re- unfortunately, you know, we don't really know what has happened or still happens in that kind of missing time period uh, um, you know, and I don't think anybody's really got an answer for that. Yeah, and Ken, it seems like you've been to, you've actually, from reading and listening to you, you've been to a lot of these places that haven't been readily explored. So you obviously have some belief that, yeah, there are uh, places out there where some of these creatures and cryptids could inhabit and just never have never been discovered or have not been dis- changed or disturbed in the tens of thousands or however many years they could uh, have made it since they actually were thought to have inhabit the uh, the earth. Yes, well, um, I'm always hesitant to use the word belief because that that's a word that's more closely associated with faith and um, you know feelings. So I, 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 you know, I try, and I don't judge those that use that word because it's kind of a common thing in the vernacular. But as a cryptozoologist, I have an obligation to be as scientific as possible. Cryptozoology is based on traditional zoology and was founded by zoologists. And so, in order to get the respect of the scientific community, we try to follow a scientific methodology. So what I tell people is that I'm, you know, I'm convinced that there are species out there that are that are undiscovered. I'm convinced by the evidence. Some, some more promising than others. You know, it's a, scientific is all about probability and, and weighing evidence. So, um, but no doubt, I mean, as you, know, as you guys said, that there have been many 
species discovered, I mean, there are literally thousands of new species described every year, but most of those are very small. But, uh, you know, every year there's a handful of, you know, surprisingly large animals or substantially sized animals that are found in different habitats around the world. Now, most of those discoveries are made in places like uh, uh, Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, uh, Africa, the Congo, and then, you know, South America, New Guinea, places like that where you have these vast uh, habitats of, of rainforest. But, you know, there are things that are also found in, you know, occasionally in North America, Europe, and so forth. But you're right. Um, they're, they're, I'm convinced that there are some of these things, like, you know, I tell people with, in terms of Bigfoot, I've never seen one with my own eyes, but I'm about 90% convinced they exist because having spent my lifetime looking at the evidence, I mean, it's pretty overwhelming when you look at all of it, in my opinion. Uh, some cryptids probably less probable because there's just not as much evidence or no physical trace evidence. So you kind of have to take each cryptid on a case-by-case -case basis and just kind of, you know, delve in and look at what evidence there is. Now, the vast majority of evidence for all cryptids is anecdotal. So it's almost always eyewitness sightings, descriptions, and legends and things like that. So there's very, very little physical evidence, which is why I think Many people are uh, are very skeptical, and I, you know I don't take that personally. People have a right to to form their opinion based on on what you know what they see. Well, well, you you have obviously seen the Patterson Gimlin film, mm -hmm. and you yeah. you are friends, I'm assuming, with Bob. Um, have spoken with mm -hmm. him, have talked to him. Now, to me, it doesn't get any clearer evidence of what is actually out there running around as masquerading as Bigfoot. And yet that, I mean, other than actually having the uh, specimen that somebody could physically study, uh, dissect, or, or whatever they want to do to it, that is the most compelling evidence to me that there is. And yet that is the most <clears throat> torn apart, uh, questioned, uh, dissected, yeah, dissected in a different way. Uh, so, so what's it? What would it really take, in your estimation, to convince people that, um, you know, just in Bigfoot's case, that it really exists? Other than the people that have seen it and been uh, had yeah. their lives changed by it. Well, at this point, I mean, it really is going to take hard physical evidence empirical evidence such as a body, a bone, DNA that's been, you know, gone through the, the proper channels and, and studied by, by bona fide scientists. So we do have a lot of trace evidence for Bigfoot. The Patterson film, Gimlin film, is convincing to a lot of people. Other people look at it and kind of shrug it off and say it looks like a guy in a costume, but typically those people haven't spent a lot of time looking at it or analyzing it. But, uh, you know, we have a number of footprints that have been documented, photographed, measured, cast with plaster, and uh, for in terms of Bigfoot, those footprints have spanned decades all over North America, and they're very consistent. I mean, they're very convincing, uh, and I don't pretend to be a, a, a footprint expert. That would be more like, uh, you know, Dr. Jeff Meldrum or Cliff Berrickman, guys that have really put a lot of time into studying the footprints, but just looking at a, you know, an assortment of, of those, 
They're very consistent. They're obviously much larger than human feet, <laughs> much much larger, averaging about 15 and a half inches long, so huge. Um, but they, you know, they have a consistent design, morphology uh, that's different than a human foot, and um, and that keeps turning up everywhere. And you know, they they're usually found in very remote areas. So you know, the skeptics that want to argue, well, people are faking those. Well, maybe in some cases, but. You know, if you find a random set of Bigfoot tracks up in the wilderness, I mean, what are the odds that someone went up there thinking that they were going to be found, you know? Yeah, the, the, I mean, yeah. what's the odds that Shaquille O'Neal's up there in his bare feet? Yeah, he's walking around, and also around they're di- hoping that somebody's going to come across his, and then he's really going to play it. That's really going to be a you great never trick. Know. I mean. Well, the other thing you have to consider is the, the, you know, if someone, even if someone said, well, look, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to use a, uh, fake foot and we're going to make a model you, you, you're you subject to weather conditions and the, the degradation of, of the sample anyway so I mean uh, you know I was at uh, on an aside I, I, I found a black bear print at uh, Malabar State Farm in Mansfield well there shouldn't be black bears there so I took a picture of it and I sent it to ODNR and they said yeah that's a black bear print where'd you see that Pennsylvania I go, no, I'm in Mansfield. They're like, well, there shouldn't be a black bear there. Well, I said, I know that. So I came back a couple of days later, and, of course, that print was completely gone. Mm-hmm. You know, Weatherhead mm-hmm. or other people had trampled it. So. so the person that was trying to play a trick on you <laughs> that made the fake black bear, you know, they, you know, they were Let's hoping put this way. that you got I, I didn't gamble that it was a fake print. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, it's because of um, people's attitudes like this is the reason why I am I really appreciate how you take a scientific approach towards um, your investigations, as well as how when you put them in the books and everything. I like how it's it's irrefutable. Whatever what details and what information you do provide, it's laid out in a scientific manner. So therefore, that eliminates a lot of the argument. You know, in the, in the legal system, in the legal system, we have something that's called. Uh, the best evidence rule. So at trials, when people are trying to make decisions of one way or the other, you know, they have to look at the evidence and we have a rule, it's called best evidence rule. And if you want to try to persuade somebody of something, you have to present the best evidence. And, you know, to me, eyewitness testimony is is the best evidence. And, you know, we're not trying to necessarily take a criminal point of view, say, where you have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. In civil cases, it's just preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. And I think based upon all the eyewitnesses that that obviously probably you've talked to and people's talked to, that the preponderance of the evidence is that there are these things out there. Yeah, I I think so too. I I think that eyewitness testimony is, you know, particularly skeptics will will quickly disregard it and say, you know, there's a whole barrage of excuses they use. Well, eyewitness testimony is unreliable and people can't remember things properly or, or fill in the in the dots but um, you know the thing is looking at a big picture when you have corroborating eyewitness testimony so that is you're interviewing people from you know that don't know each other from different places and, and you know their their physical descriptions are similar and that's what you have in terms of Bigfoot again you have thousands now of eyewitness sightings that have been documented through the decades and the descriptions are almost all identical, you know. So, I mean, if, if people were making up stories, they might, they might be prone to change or embellish or put their own, you know, fingerprints on a, 
on a particular description. So that's and also multiple eyewitness testimonies, and those are really exciting to me when you have, you know, two or three or, or more eyewitnesses that have that, that encounter a cryptid or, or see something, and and their testimonies are all consistent. You know, that that I'm sure that's similar in in the legal system as well. So and the credibility of the witnesses that carries yeah. a lot of weight yeah. as well. I appreciate that. Getting just one more thing, just to address the North American Dogman Project. I did not start that. Uh, that was started by Jody Cook and, oh, he's going to kill me, uh, another guy. I forgot his name right off the bat. But they're the ones that started. They, that was their focus because no one else had it. Everybody had the Bigfoot stuff, but no one was talking about Dogman. And initially, i got to be honest, when I heard Dogman, my buddy Al said, dude, you got to listen to this. you got to hear this stuff. I'm like, werewolves? Really? I thought it was, I, I got to be honest, I thought it was crap. Um, no such thing as werewolves. And then you start listening to it. And then you start interviewing people individually outside of this, you know, off the record that, that work military or some other end of the, you know, where they have more to lose than gain. And you start hearing things. You start questioning. And then you have your own experiences. And you're like, okay, so there's a werewolf now. <laughs> you know, that's something I wanted to know was true or not. Right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Talk to talk to us about the North American Dogman Project, or and and, oh. and what you what you have uh, learned, you know, from your research. Well, you know, when you when you when you hear about people talking about this this cryptid creature, um, and Judge, I did hear your story. Thanks, uh, Shane sent me an episode where you told your story, which was pretty. Uh, fascinating, and um, I'm going to probably say you got very lucky that day. <laughs> because <laughs> you, were, you were being, you were being, I think in general, um, you were being uh, pursued by that, that, that creature that came out of the woods, and you said that it looked like Anubis. Um, yeah. And that is the greatest definition, explanation, if, you, if people really want to know, there's two things I say, I say to people regarding, well, what's a dogman? You know, uh, dogman is a name given by Linder Godfrey, land between the lakes, you know, frame and all that stuff, because they said it looked like a dog on its hind legs. Um, it's basically a werewolf, uh, a lichen, or it, it looks something like the Van Helsing creature of werewolves or American, uh, the, um, American werewolf in London type of, of werewolf. Or it has an Anubis type quality to it, where you have this big, muscular body that's almost a bipedal, you know, human esque with lots of hair and claws, and this head of a dog, a German Shepherd, or something of the like, hyena German Shepherd, that type of thing. And, um, and being a are, being a, a student of of early Wolfman movies with Lon Chaney, you know, when when I saw yeah. this thing. It never resonated with me, werewolf, because I, you know, yeah. I imagined the, the flat yeah. face of a man and wearing a tattered plaid shirt and a pair of jeans, you know, running around. And so for years, you know, I secretly researched what in the heck was it that I saw. Never once thought werewolf. Are you sure it wasn't Grover? Right. <laughs> he could run that fast. <laughs> oh, jeez. For short periods of time. I People throughout time have, have talked and discussed uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch. The, the indigenous people throughout the world 
of discuss Sasquatch. I mean, that's always been at the forefront uh, of, of this type of cryptid thing. Um, you know, a man, a bipedal hairy man with apish quality to it or, or you know, in that realm that lives in the woods. Um, no one's really discussed publicly that there's this creature that's kind of wolf-esque or hyena-esque and has the, the shape and body of a man. No, I mean, it really wasn't discussed that much. But as more and more of these sightings are coming out, you know, now it becomes, it's the new, you know, in thing. It's, it's the hot potato. This is what people are seeing. Now, I'm going to go so far to say that uh, of the sightings you hear reported, I'm going to give it an 80-20 split. 80% are probably real sightings and 20% are hyperbole on this cryptid. This cryptid varies in like seven different variants that's been broken down into um, about seven variants from something that looks like a, a, a type one, um, which is like a canine looking uh, variant, really like a wolf, think wolf, werewolf, like a dog werewolf. Those type uh, two variant, which is more hyena-esque to a three uh, type variant, uh, which is more like that wolf, uh, werewolf in Van Helsing, that werewolf soldier that's like 12 feet tall. There's also ones that look a little bit like, um, I'm going to say like a combination of a cheetah and a leopard or something to that effect. And then you get into the type three variants, which run the gamut from like a, a, a deformed Bigfoot monkey to a baboon. Um, with a middle one being really, really evil-looking bad dog. And it, it depends on where you are and what you're looking at. Because I always thought, initially, when you're going out into this field, there's going to be variations of these things anyhow. It's, it's in human nature. Like, look, we, we're, we're more Caucasian in this country than, let's say, you know, in Asia, there's certain different breaks break on different characteristics. So, Throughout human history, there's going to be certain changes that distinguish us from each other. But ultimately, they're all lumped into the dogman category because it, it acts more like that werewolf. So are you um, saying there's more the, like breeds? You know, like in, in canines, we have different breeds. The, the, but, in the dogman phenomena, there's different breeds of dogman. I think there, there are um, not only different breeds or we'll call them variants because that's what they've been using. Um, but there's also different roles in different stages. See, a lot of the dogman stories we hear, first of all, dogmen in general, they don't hunt alone. So that's why I said you got lucky. You were running when you were running and you were doing the pacing, you're hearing this thing keeping pace with you. It was, it was no effort for this creature to keep pace with you. Right. At all. Absolutely. At, at all. I mean, it's insane what these things can do. These things can leap 60 feet without even thinking about it. But in general, if you have a dog, if you come up on a road, you're walking in the woods, you're hunting, whatever it is, and you come up and this thing steps out in front of you, I will guarantee you, you have one behind you or one creeping around to behind you. They never, ever are alone. That was the theory. And, most, and that, and that yeah. was a theory that when years later I was on an airplane, actually, talking to some guy who had actually hunted wolves, and that was his theory. Yep. He's like, look, you, you were being pushed. You know, his thing was, you know, wolves yep. wolves don't like to attack anything of size by themselves. They're scared they'd get hurt, not be able to run with the pack. 
And so what his theory was, this thing was pushing me towards us towards the pack, or if there or however okay. big the pack was. And that if and I was very lucky that I turned right and went to my buddy's house versus turn left. Because if I'd have turned yep. left, I probably would have, they they would have ran me right into it. Yeah, that, that what they'd like to do is they like to steer in that direction. You were perfect prey. You were uh, a runner. You're lean. It's all muscle. There's very little fat on you, right? Not you anymore. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and yeah. So as far as his animal smell and protein right. and stuff like that, yep. yeah, I would have been. I'd have been. I mean, right easy. right were, now, yeah. he he's probably. Feeding the whole pack for two, at least two months. <laughs> but I, so I want to I want to ask, and maybe this yeah. is a question that some of our listeners that are not familiar with this subject. So, do you do you believe that the dog man? Then we're talking about a creature that solely exists as a dog man type creature, not the one that we've seen in the movies. Not that, metamorphosing yeah, from man yeah, this to isn't, this beast. Isn't some, like man. Yeah, this yeah. isn't some curse that somebody turns into, uh, which is, we can do another Seinfeld reference where uh, where Jerry shaves his chest and, you know, and it grows back in and he becomes, and can't stop the scratching and itching. But, but that's, is that what we're talking about? We're, we're talking about this is biological a, creature. Yeah, a biological creature that, when we mm-hmm. call it dog man, it's only because it appears to be bipedal. Be bi- bipedal, not that it's half, ma- half actually half man. Or is it? Well, I think that that when you get into the subject of these cryptids, these dog men, the physical, you know, the the physical traits of these things, as well as into the Sasquatch Bigfoot, I think you're you're almost getting like a missing link type of thing here. I think there is a development. There may have been a crossover between the human gene and these things that created this this end of the creature. Maybe this was created prior to humans, and we are the end result of genetic manipulation. I um, don't know. That's a theory. Okay? But I think that if we had hairs from this creature, definitive hairs, like come and grab the whole bunch of it while it was being attacked, and here, I got these hairs from it. I think you would find that the DNA and RNA on it had some human qualities to it, where you'd say, "Well, I, I'm getting human," and it, w- it just it would be something there. It says, "Well, I'm getting human stuff, but I'm also getting dog stuff." So you probably had something rub up against you. I think there is something to this this cryptid um, that has a human quality. I definitely believe this thing does not transform. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the From the Shadows podcast. Until next time, never shy away from the darkness or what may be lurking in the shadows. We are out. <laughs>
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.